0: Now, hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here this morning. And I've got, I'm going to tell you, we're going to be going, I know that verse was short, and some of you might have had hope on a short sermon. Uh, Listen, we've got a lot of stuff going on, so would anybody give me five extra minutes for a sermon today? Anybody? Anybody? Thank five, 10, 15, 25. Thank you. I'm going to need every bit of it. All right. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent The word advent, we don't use it too often anymore, but the word advent is from a Latin word, adventus, and it means arrival. And that word is taken from the Greek or the Latin translation of a Greek word, perusia, which means the arrival. So often when when the Bible's talking about the arrival of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus, the word there is perusia. The Latin, adventus. That's where we get this word advent from. So for Christians, the season of advent celebrates the coming of Christ from two different perspectives. This season offers us the opportunity to share the deep longing with those from the Old Testament who are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But it's also a season where we look forward to Christ's second coming. And so for the Christian church... We have traditionally celebrated Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas. Each week, we look at a piece of the work of Jesus and see how it affects, or it should affect, those who believe in Christ. Traditionally, we light a new candle every week, and these candles represent something uh, from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The candles represent hope. That's what we lit this week. Love, joy, and peace. Peace. So each week, we light a new candle, and then on Christmas Eve, if you notice, I don't know if you notice this or not, you probably don't, but we, we, every Christmas, we get a new Christmas candle, and that's the Christ candle, and we light it on Christmas Eve, and then that thing stays lit the entire year long, and it burns all the way down, except for one fateful day on Good Friday, where that thing gets blown out. But surprise, it comes back on Sunday. So that's what the candles are all about. We've posted some ideas on Advent, how to celebrate it as a family on Church Center. So hopefully you found those out. Well, we've decided to do something a little bit different this year. We have decided to take a look at a traditional Christmas hymn each week and ask, why do we sing this? And then we wanna study the passage or passages of scripture that the song is based upon. And now you might ask, well, why, why should we study a song? Well, music is powerful. It helps us memorize things, it can shape our emotion, it can even influence our actions. Therefore, Christians have always used music to get the story of Jesus into our everyday lives. If you didn't know, the book of Psalms was actually set to music, and the Israelites would sing it in order to memorize it. They learned to pray through singing. St. Augustine, the 5th century bishop of North Africa, is attributed as saying, those who sing, pray twice. And he also said, singing belongs to the one who loves. There's something about love that causes us to sing, and singing also influences what we love. Augustine reminds us that the words of our hymns are actually prayers. And when we sing them, we add to them a further dimension of honor and love in his words, We pray twice. And then, of course, in the scriptures themselves, God commands us to sing. Fifteen times the Old Testament tells us straight up, sing to the Lord. In addition, the Bible instructs us to come into his presence with singing, to make melody to the Lord and enter into his courts in song. The, The real reason Joel played the harmonica this morning was because I bought one six months ago and dared him I said, dude, I'm bringing my harmonica to church. He said, don't you dare bring that thing to church. I'll play it, I'll play it, right? He didn't want me playing from the front row, right? We're meant to bring our instruments to the Lord and bring our singing to the Lord. There are some 242 exhortations in the Old Testament alone to sing to our God. Add to that the 12 New Testament citations and you get a pretty good picture of how important songs are and singing is to God. In fact, you go all the way to the back of the book And the book of Revelation portrays heaven as continually filled with the songs of the saints and angels, to which when we sing on a Sunday morning, our own voices are added when we pray twice. We sing because singing is what the people of God do to worship and enjoy him forever. So that's why we wanted to take the next four weeks and take a look at a Christmas hymn. And today our hymn of study is come thou long-expected Jesus. Come thou long-expected Jesus. And it really gets us right to the heart of the Advent season. We are doing two things. Remember, we are looking back to Jesus's first coming in humility, and we're also looking forward to his second coming in glory. So the first two weeks of Advent, we're gonna focus primarily on Jesus's second coming, and then the last two weeks, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we'll focus on his first. Now, let me pray for us and we can get started this morning. God of all grace, we come before your throne right now and we request more of that grace. God, I, as an instrument of you right now, I need that grace because I am just a sinful man like everyone else, Lord. And so I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I don't wanna say anything in error this morning. I don't wanna confuse. I don't wanna to to hurt, Father God. I want to speak the words that you've given me to say. And I pray that you would help me do that with clarity and accuracy and boldness this morning. I pray for every person here that they would have ears to hear. I pray that you would keep the distractions at a minimum and that we would be locked in on what you would have to say to us this morning. We want to continue to pray for those who are sick in our congregation. Lord, we wanna pray for Isla. We wanna pray for Tona. We wanna pray for those who are are in the hospital even now. And we just pray that you would heal them and heal their bodies. God, we also wanna pray that you, that we this morning would see and believe the promises that you have made to your people. That those promises that you have made and those promises that you have kept would give us great hope in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, Lord. And we say, with the saints of old, we say, the last chapter of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on Wednesday night of this past week, I had a membership interview and then got home around 8 p.m., I sat down in my Lazy Boy, pulled up my Hulu account and was planning on watching Jack Bauer kill some bad guys on some old 24 reruns. Instead, I saw the Rockefeller tree in New York City was about to be lit, so I clicked on that instead. Like usual, it was an enormous and beautiful tree. This year's tree weighs in about 12 tons and stands 80 feet tall. I'm, I'm, I'm requesting from the budget team next year. We've got one of those. The tree is decked out with 50,000 multicolored lights strung on approximately five miles of wire. And it's topped with a 900-pound star with 70 spikes covered in 3 million Swarovski crystals. It is quite the spectacle. Here's a picture of that. Did we get the picture of that? Hopefully we got the picture of that. Do we get the picture? Give me one second, give me one second. Come on, this is the internet age. That's all right, it's coming. Well, when, you, when it does get up there, you're gonna see, it, maybe you've already seen it. I personally was struck by its beauty and grandeur. And then the choir began to sing, joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And I thought, do they even know what they are singing? on a network and a media establishment who glories in all kinds of things that God hates, whose stated purpose is antithetical to Jesus's purpose in the world, they are celebrating and singing right now on national television, probably international television, the Savior reigns. Now, I would guess that they don't actually know what they are singing. To them, it's just tradition, And sentimentality. But then an hour later, I opened up X. If you don't know what X is, it's Twitter. Now it's called X. I don't know. I opened up Twitter, X, on my phone, and I saw another group of people at the tree. And they knew exactly what that tree was supposed to represent and what that song meant by, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And they were chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And if you don't know what that means, it means that they believe that Israel needs to be wiped off the face of the earth, that there's no place for Israel, and they want every last Jew killed. In fact, they will tell you it's not just about Israel either. Islam teaches that all the nations belong to Allah, and their stated goal is to take over the world. Quoting from the Quran this morning, Muhammad wrote this, it is he, Allah, who has sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth in order for it to be dominant over all other religions, even though the disbelievers hate it. And the messenger Muhammad went on and said, Verily, Allah has shown me the eastern and western part of the earth, and I saw the authority of my Ummah nation dominant over all that I saw. Quoting again, And most of mankind will not believe it, even if you desire it eagerly. Therefore, there are three main ways Muhammad taught in which a state or a country can become the dominant or the domain of Islam. Number one, through the majority of its citizens to embrace Islam and implement the Sharia law on their own accord. Number two, a group of Muslims rise and overthrow the government and implement Sharia law by force in a coup. Or three, the Islamic State carries out jihad as its foreign policy and removes the government. Now, let me just say right away that this is not what all Muslims currently believe. I'm not trying to say that all Muslims are bad or more evil than anyone else. I am simply stating what the Quran, their holy book says, and what Muhammad taught. And I do it because that picture on my TV and on my phone tells a story. One group is singing about the Prince of Peace that they do not know. It's just tradition and sentimentality while their enemies are within the gates declaring their goals of world domination right in front of them. They're saying the quiet part out loud. One group's they know, one group knows they're in a battle and knows what they are fighting for and the other one is singing sentimental songs while the Titanic goes down. So what are we to do? Well, we are to know why and what we are singing. We sing promises from God. Promises we can take to the bank. But these promises must be known, they must be loved, they must be treasured, they must be believed. We must stand upon the promises of God that he has made to us if we are to see them come to fruition in our lives. So let's take a look at some of these promises from God's word this morning. And there are many, and I'm really going to scratch the surface, but we've got a lot of work to do. So let's open up our Bibles if you've got them, and we're going to be flipping around a lot this morning to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verses 14 and 15. This, of course, is after God created everything good. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, of course, did it. They broke commandment with God, and so they brought death upon themselves and a curse upon the world. Here's what God said to Satan. The serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat it all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity, that's animosity, that's violence. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What the scripture teaches us this morning is there's really only two types of people in the world. Those who are, have been made children of God and those who have been born of God, who have who love him and follow him, and those who follow maybe their own desires, their own thoughts, but ultimately behind those desires is the enemy. Behind those desires is the serpent. Behind those desires is Satan, the father of lies. And God tells us here that there will be enmity between these two groups of people, but one of God's children, here's the promise, one of God's children will eventually deal a death blow to the serpent He'll crush the head of the snake while being wounded in the process, he'll have his heel bruised. If Satan here is depicted as a serpent or a great dragon, this is a promise that God will send a dragon slayer from the children of man who will slay the dragon. But in that great battle with the dragon, he himself will be mortally wounded. Now, this was a promise of God from at least 6,000 years ago. Then as time went on and the battle continued to rage, God made many more promises. He promised Abraham that Abraham would be the father of many nations, even though at the time Abraham was 100 years old and had no children. He promised David that a member of his family would sit on a throne forever and rule the nations in Psalm 10, 110, David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then hundreds of years later, God gave a vision to the prophet Isaiah. So listen, here's how things begin. In the Bible, the, 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 the promises are kind of obscure, right? They're, they're kind of obscure. You don't really, this dragon slayer, what, what, what is going on? But then as God continues to reveal himself to his people, it's like a blurry picture that begins to come into focus. And as you start moving through the prophets, the picture of the one, the dragon slayer who will come, that, that picture, that blurry picture starts to get really clear. Isaiah says this in chapter seven, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself God himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, he, shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This was a promise that God would come with us and somehow be born of a virgin. And as Isaiah further prophesied around 600 years before the birth of Jesus, that this son of God, this conquering king who would rule the nations from an eternal throne would also do the unthinkable. He would suffer for his people. You could turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This is an astonishing chapter as the suffering savior comes into focus scripture says this who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or ma- ma- majesty that we should look at him in other words jesus wasn't drop dead gorgeous okay jesus wasn't a model he looked like a normal man and no beauty that we should desire him or the coming messiah sorry i i've I ruined the I ruined it there. If you didn't know, surprise, Jesus. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, this conquering king, this dragon slayer, when he came to earth, there's something about him that we would despise and we would turn our eyes away from him. What was that something? Verse four begins, surely... All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, the suffering Savior that would come, who would conquer the dragon, all of our sins would be put on him. And he would suffer in our place for them. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he is taken away. And as for this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he would die stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus was given a rich man's tomb upon his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus spoke everything that was true. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, Jesus took our place on the cross He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities in other words how do you make an unrighteous person righteous you can't make an unrighteous person righteous by that unrighteous person learning to do righteous things because the unrighteousness goes all the way down but Jesus Christ can live that person's life and die their death and give them a new righteousness by sheer faith and make that person righteous in the eyes of God Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus' garments, of course, were divided among those who were crucifying him because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These are all promises that God made in the Old Testament 600 years before Christ ever showed up. Most of these promises were either kind of partially fulfilled in the Old Testament or weren't fulfilled at all. That means some of them have, had, had gone hundreds of years, some of even thousands of years being unfulfilled. Where is this dragon slayer? How is Abraham gonna be the father of many nations? Where is this suffering savior who will take away the sins of the world and, and he will give me the right, this new righteousness that I can't earn, earn on my own? Hundreds, thousands of years of being Unfulfilled Can I ask you, how long can you hold on to a promise and still keep the faith and believe it? Well, let me introduce you to a man named Simeon. This is Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 verses 22 through 35. Jesus has been born, and now it's time for his parents to present him at the temple and present offerings for him according to the law of Moses. So verse 22, and when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word, those words, the consolation of Israel, was in our song this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. All right, here's the, here's the idea. These promises were made thousands of years ago. Some of them are a hundred years ago. More than likely, this faith had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And here is Simeon waiting for the day, waiting for the Messiah to come. And he somehow the Holy Spirit's revealed to him that guess what? All of that waiting is over. Those promises that God made to your forefathers in the Old Testament, you are about to see those promises fulfilled. Before you see death, you're going to see the Savior. And Simeon, Simeon's obviously fired up. He's fired up to come to church. Why? This might be the day. I'm at the temple, bring me the little ones. Bring me the, is this gonna be the king? Is this the dragon slayer? Who is the one, right? Well, now they bring Jesus to him. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit to the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That means This savior isn't just the savior of the Jewish people. This savior is the savior of all the world. And for glory to your people Israel and his mother or his father and his mother marveled at what been said about him. God had made a promise to his people to send a savior, the dragon slayer. And God had made a promise to Simeon as well. The promise that he would see with his own eyes, that savior and Simeon hoped against hope. Can you imagine God says you're gonna see the Savior. Simeon's obviously getting up there in age because he's like, oh, finally, I can die now. Like, that's basically what he says. All right, I can depart in peace. Which means the majority of his life, he went to the temple and in one sense left unfulfilled. Today wasn't the day. Today wasn't the day. How many times does the, do you feel that in your life? You pray for healing. Today's not the day. You pray for the raise, today's not the day. You, you pray for the breakthrough and faith in somebody in your family, today's not the day. You come in, you in your hope, you are expectant, and you go out and say, oh, what didn't happen today? Didn't happen. Simeon shows us what it looks like to hope against hope, to have a violent hope, to have a hope that perseveres, a hope that goes through the darkness, a hope that in a, in a tornado, in a whirlwind, in the midst of black, you can hold one little candle and say, I'm not giving up. God, and then it says, he saw with his eyes. (laughs) The one day, the promise was fulfilled. Faith became sight. And God always keeps his promises. The promise God made to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. We see this in Romans chapter three. If you wanna go to Romans chapter three with me. This morning, we're gonna have some fun. I'm sorry, I think it's Romans chapter four, actually. Yeah, Romans chapter four. For the promise to Abraham, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Do you hear that? Heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is... The adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law that there, if there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham with the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That means when everything was saying, give up, he didn't give up. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, (laughs) Yeah, that means he looked in the mirror and said, "Kids from this?" And he probably looked at his wife and said, "Kids from that?" Like she's 100 too. She's 100. Like, oh, this is I don't know. I don't know, God, right? When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. In other words, I don't care what my eye's seen. I know what God has spoken to me. That's a promise. God has made a promise. I will stand upon the promise no matter what my eye see, no matter what the world says. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Walking against a hard headwind makes you stronger. When faith isn't easy, that makes your faith stronger. That's how your faith grows. That's how it builds its muscles, is going against a strong headwind. When the cultural waters are pushing you one way and you you put your head down and you lean into the wind and you keep on believing and hoping against hope, that's how you grow in your faith. Fully, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is what it means. We believe God. We trust his promises. This is how this is how we are saved. This is how we're justified. But the words it was counted to him were not written, look, for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him whom raised whom raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications what's he saying there right now any single any person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ has become by faith a children of Abraham that means the children of Abraham spread over the whole globe there's right now 2 billion or more children of Abraham over the whole face of the earth god has fulfilled his promise to abraham The promises made to Isaiah were also fulfilled. Jesus was, of course, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he also suffered greatly for his people. This is a historical fact. He took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve for our many sins, and he died the death that we deserve upon the cross to turn away the wrath of God from us forever. How do we know we're right with God? We are in Christ. We trust in Christ. That's how we know. Christ poured out, or God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. That means there's no wrath left for us who are in Christ. Now let's take a look at another promise, and this promise has yet to be fulfilled. This promise has yet to be fulfilled. This is from our text that we read this morning, Philippians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? That Christ has a kingdom. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. That means it's not from this world, but that eternal kingdom, that kingdom that is in heaven is on its way to this earth, right? We're called to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, there are spiritual realities and there are physical realities. And in the spiritual realities right now, if you are in Christ, you are also a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a citizen with a different king. Our king is Jesus. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await. Do you see that word? We await a Savior. Here's my contention this morning. Just like Simeon, every single day going to the temple saying, is this the day? Is this the day that I'll get to see the Messiah? We are to have that same posture. And we are to, to be hopeful and expectantly waiting from our, for our Savior, our King, to come from heaven to this earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will, this is what he's going to do. This is just, this is like, this, this is like. This is the tweet version, okay? This is the tweet version. We could get to Revelations 21, Revelation 22. We could see the fuller picture of it, but this is the small synopsis view, the thesis statement of what Jesus is going to do when he comes back again. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is sitting on his heavenly throne, David's throne, right now in heaven. From there, he is ruling and bringing about his father's plan for the salvation of all nations. He accomplishes this through the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of the nations, Christians teaching everyone who will listen to obey all that Jesus has commanded. But if we if we look at that verse and we go up, we just go up a little bit, we get a feel of what it feels like to live in this society as we wait for the coming of the Holy One. Look at verse 18. No, verse 17, I'm gonna go up three. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter three. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who will walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Who who is this? Those who follow Satan. The battle is still raging between the sons of God and the sons of the evil one. Now, most of these folks don't walk around wearing satanic things around their neck. Why? Because Satan has blinded their eyes and so they simply, they believe that we're just doing what we want. Look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. When Christ comes back again and sets up his eternal kingdom that we want and peace will reign, peace will reign because every single person who has not accepted Christ will be destroyed. Their end will be destruction. Look at their God is their belly. Well, that's a funny thing to say. I shouldn't bring this up around Christmas time. You know, I'm tempted. I'm tempted around Christmas. What does it mean? It means I just go with my gut. I live my life based on what feels good. Whatever desires that I have, I'm gonna pursue whatever I want in my life. I'm animalistic. I just pursue my desires. My God is my belly. And their glory is their shame. Remember last week we talked about the glory of God. Their glory is their shame. They take glory in shameful things. Their minds set on earthly things. But our, now see it, but our citizenship is in heaven. That means we don't live just by our gut. We don't live off, we don't just pursue our desires. We don't keep our eyes on the earth. We look up to the hills from where our help comes from, and our help comes from heaven, comes from the Lord of glory. Jesus says, He's gonna transform our lowly bodies. not just our bodies. We learn he's gonna transform all of creation. He's gonna renew all things for the glory of God. All the presence of sin will be driven away. Death will be no more. Tears will be no more. We're gonna totally renew to heaven and earth. One day through the power of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk tells us, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything He commanded, that, that was a promise that Jesus made to His church. And we are to stand on that promise until we see it fulfilled. It's going to happen. Too many Christians have, are sitting on their hands thinking it's already happened. Because the gospel is spread around and we've got two billion Christians. Like, I don't think it's over yet. I, I know it's not. How do I know it's not? He's not here. We wait, family, like the Old Testament people of old. We are here this morning patiently awaiting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back and transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now I know that there are some of us here today that say, Justin, you really expect me to believe all this stuff about Jesus coming back again or Jesus being raised from the dead? Now, can't we just get rid of all that stuff? Isn't Christianity really just about being nice to one another, right? Paying it forward, buying the person, you know, in line behind you at Starbucks, buying their latte when you leave. Isn't that what Christmas and Christianity is all about? Well, we are to be nice to one another, but that's not what Christianity is all about. The Apostle Paul says it directly in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 12. And listen, I'm circling the run- runway, okay? It's getting close. I'm circling it. It's getting close. I can see it down there. We're, we're getting close. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 12. Listen, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There are many people today that want to say the resurrection is a myth. The we don't need the resurrection anymore. All that we need now is just to be nice to one another. The apostle Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified, <clears throat> excuse me, about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. <clears throat> excuse me. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Christ, wasn't, if Christ didn't get out of that grave, then this is all a big waste of time. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, and forget about the morals of Christianity. Forget about all, everything that comes downstream from Christianity. Throw away the Christmas tree. Stop singing joy to the world, because it all depends on this one fact. Did the man get up? Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But here we go. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Two things. Number one, the man saying this hated Jesus Christ. The man saying this killed Christians and then The only, you know, something that might change your theology is if the, you know, uh, the, the son of God comes back from the dead, knocks you off a horse and says, hey, bro, you screwed up. And that's effectively what happens to Saul to convert him. Okay. Listen, Jesus, though, his resurrection, listen to this, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits. In other words, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to a whole lot more people. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in, all, in Christ shall all who are in Christ all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his second coming, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after, look at after, destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, Christ is going to rule in heaven right now until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And then after all of his enemies have been put under his feet, except for one, death, then Christ is gonna come back to raise the dead. Let me me prove it here. Verse 25, for he must reign right now until he has put, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That Hear the promise this morning. Hear the promise with ears like Simeon. Jesus is coming back to make all things new, even us. That means all of the evil in the world has an expiration date and God alone knows that date. All of the suffering in the world, all of our fears and sins, all of the darkness will be dispelled when the king of light appears the second time. So what are we to do here and now as we wait on him? We are to believe his promises. We are to hope against hope. We are to delight in them. We are to memorize them. We are to sing of them and teach them to our children. And we are to do this with a holy violence. Now I use that word not to connote any physical violence at all, but an attitude, an intensity, an awareness of the battle of faith that we are in in the midst of a dark culture and age. The famous author who went to the University of Iowa, Flannery O'Connor, she once said this, quoting a scripture in the first part here, the kingdom of heaven has to be taken by violence or not at all. You have to push as hard as the age pushes against you. In other words, we're in a cultural stream. Throw us in the middle of the Mississippi. How hard do you have to swim to get upstream? Right? You, you got to swim real hard and pray for somebody in a boat, right? That's what you got to do. The culture is pushing against us to not hope, to give up hope, to take our little light and put it under a bushel and pull down our Christmas lights and just give up hope. But we are not going to do it. We have to push as hard against the age as the age pushes against us. That is a quote that she's not trying to stir up violence in any type of way or any type of insurrection. She's trying to communicate the seriousness of the battle between faith and unbelief. It's a battle, and if we are going to win the battle in our day and age, we must be on the offensive. We must approach it with a seriousness and an intensity that at least matches the opponents we face. Listen, it doesn't matter your... I grew up. I was I was a wrestler, and if 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 it's man against man, right, when you're out there on the mat, and if that guy comes at you with a serious intensity, if you don't match that intensity, you'll get bowled over. You might have better technique, you might be in better shape, but if you can't match the intensity, you're going to get knocked over. We have got to match the intensity of the age that we're in. So, what are we going to do? We're going to sing. We're going to rejoice. We're going to confess our sins we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We're gonna take it with a seriousness and intensity. In our song this morning, this, O Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, he says this. We're gonna sing it one last time. Hopefully you'll understand some more of the words. O come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the faith of Simeon, Would you enable us to hold on to these promises even when we're in a culture, an age that's pushing hard against them, that we can hope against hope in the midst of the darkness that the dawning of the light has come, that the light will not be extinguished and one day the king of light will return and dispel all darkness. Jesus, we hope against hope that you, the dragon slayer, who slayed Satan on the cross in your life, death, and resurrection, you slayed Satan and you took the keys to death, hell, and the grave, and one day you will come again and make all things new. Would you give your people the hope and the faith to believe that and hold on to those promises no matter what difficulty they're going through in their life today? Would you do it for your glory and our joy? And Father, I'm thankful in the meat. You say that you prepare a meal in the presence of our enemies. There are many people in our city who don't like us. There are many people in our city who hate us. They hate the light, they hate you. And yet you've prepared the Lord's supper. You've prepared this meal in the midst of our enemies. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord, where we are citizens in heaven right now. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of wine which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord until we eat of it and drink of it again with you at the marriage supper of the lamb when you come again. God, would you help us? Would you feed us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.